Revelation 19.11 And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed, clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp, goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the, and the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we can once again spend time focusing on our Lord and our Saviour. We pray that your spirit this morning would teach us your words and your way, your truth. That our hearts would be completely open to it, that our lives may be changed and transformed by it. We thank you once again for the privilege that we have of being able to read your word, being able to learn from it, and also the blessing it is to be able to come together in this place and spend time here together at your feet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we looked at the, one of the significant positions that a believer holds when they're saved. And it was, it was the image, and the image I was trying to, uh, to bring across to you was that when Adam was given or was created, he was given dominion of this world. He was told to, to, to keep the world or subdue it, and he was in charge of it. In a sense, he was the king of this world. And when Satan uh, tempted Eve and, and Adam and Eve both fell, we find that they relinquished that position. They lost it. And they, were in, in a, they went from a position of, uh, of authority and, uh, and dominion to a position of bondage. But then we find Jesus Christ coming onto the scene. The promised one. The one who would restore the relationship that we had with God in the garden. And the Bible says that as in Adam all die, and every natural man is in Adam, the Bible there also says that he who is in Christ now is free. And is living. The Bible says that a believer by relationship to Christ is in Christ and now is identified with him rather than being identified with Adam who is under the condemnation of sin. The Bible also says that if you are in Christ today, the Bible says or confirms that according to Peter, you are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That means very special. Okay? It doesn't mean strange, it means special. That you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. We indeed hold a very privileged position. If you're saved today, you no longer are associated with your sinful past. You are now associated with your future, with the relationship that you have now with Jesus Christ, 
We are associated with him. And because he is a king, and he is the king of kings, the Bible says that we are royal in a sense. We are part of his family. Turn with Rome, to Romans chapter 8, verse 14 with me. Romans chapter 8, verse 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. That's an incredible verse when you think about it. What does it mean to be, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God? Joint heirs with Christ. Jo- I mean, an heir is someone who will inherit a position. Someone who inherits the things that, that are owned by their parents or by their, by their father. The Bible here says that we are joint heirs with Christ. What, what does Christ have to expect here? What's waiting for him? The Bible says dominion over all things. He sits on a throne at the moment. Everything belongs to him. The Bible then says that we are joint heirs with him in what I can't even imagine. How did we come to this wonderful benefit? What did we do to earn it? Well, by, by the word inheritance, and by, the, by the fact that we are adopted as children, actually nothing at all. Nothing that we have done. Because we find that because we were associated with Adam, the Bible says that when Adam sinned, okay, death passed upon all men. So every person that has ever been born has the, the, the curse of sin upon them. And that sin is, in, is almost inherited in two different ways. Pastor Steve, would you close your ears because you, you're teaching me this at the moment, so I want to make sure I'm doing it right. We inherit sin or a sin nature from our parents. All the way from Adam down to us, nothing has changed in man. We have all inherited the same nature. And it's that nature that keeps us caged, that keeps us uh, uh, bound by Satan and sin. We are slaves to sin, literally, because we have a nature that always wants to sin, to please ourselves, to fulfill the lusts of our flesh. That's our nature. We're born like that. And we've been... Fortunate enough to inherit that from our parents and then from their parents and their parents and their parents all the way back to Adam. But on top of that, the Bible says that by association with Adam, simply because we are his children in a sense and we are associated with him, that the Bible says that his guilt, what he did in that garden, was imputed to us. In other words, because of Adam's sin, 
we are called automatic sinners. That's why we die. Because the judgment of death that came upon him in the garden also comes, up, comes down upon every one of his descendants automatically. That's why the Bible says everyone dies. From little babies up to whatever. Everyone dies. But the Bible also teaches that for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. It's two very different pictures, isn't it? In one, if you're associated to one, you will die. But if you're associated with the other, you will live. So the answer to the question, what did we earn? What did we do to earn this precious uh, position? Absolutely nothing. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We still don't deserve it. But we received it as a gift. When we receive him or the Lord Jesus as our saviour. That's what it means to have a saviour. This is why we call it salvation. Because if we had to do it ourselves, it wouldn't be salvation anymore, would it? If you were drowning in the ocean and you managed to paddle your way or swim your way to the shore, you've saved yourself. Or if you've paddled or, or swam half the way with someone's assistance, that person didn't necessarily save you. But the Bible says that we could do, there was nothing in and of ourselves we could have done to actually earn or merit that salvation. It was all done for us. The Bible says that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. And through death he might, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus won an incredible victory. Nothing in history has ever come close to close to it. Add up every battle in history that's ever taken place, every war, first and second world wars and everything else that has happened, this was the major victory in the universe throughout all time. Jesus won a victory that we could never have won ourselves. And he won his rightful place on the throne of this world. He wrenched the throne from Satan and won freedom for everyone who puts now their trust in him. He won our freedom because we were captives before. But this is the problem. Jesus, in a sense, if you can picture this, that every man, woman and child are locked up in a cage, kept there by Satan until they die. Now Jesus literally went around and unlocked every cage with what he did. Ever seen those um, stories of animals that have been <clears throat> kept um, uh, captive all their lives or domesticated like wild animals that have grown up in a, a domestic sort of environment and then they're brought back to the wild in a cage and they swing the door open and they don't want to come out. Because they're too used to the cage. Too used to that surrounding. Not wanting to be free. Not understanding what it means to be free. And this is the problem that we find with man. Because of his fallen nature. Jesus has literally opened the door and all they have to do is step out into that light. But they won't. 
because they've grown accustomed to the cage. They've grown accustomed to sin and it's more comfortable for them to stay in that cage and die a miserable death than it is to step out and trust in someone else. This is why men reject the gospel. Turn to John chapter 3 verse 17. John 3.17 says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light lest his deeds be, should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. When we preach the gospel, we say... Repent of your sins and turn to God. Repentance is another way of simply saying, agree with God about what he says about you and your sin. But the Bible says that people love their sin so much, they don't want to agree with it. They would rather their sin than freedom. They're trapped as slaves to their own sin. The choice between life and death become very blurred. Ever had to make a decision between two things? Alright? I'm trying to do that at the moment. I'm trying to buy a new printer at work. Okay? And it's, it started off as a very simple thing. I need to buy a printer for this department who needs it to print up brochures and that. And then as I speak to different salespeople... They didn't start offering me other things. Oh, have you thought about this? Oh, no. Then have you thought about that function? Would you like that function as well? Now, all of a sudden, instead of choosing a printer for the thing, I've now choosing between a multi-function centre, a, a, a thing that does scan, copying, uh, copying, faxing, does everything. I'm, I've got a, a choice of about another five or six printers that do the same sort of thing, but they all have little different variations within them. One does A3, one does banner, one does A4, one does binding, one does... So now all of a sudden, everything's confused. If I had one printer or two printers to choose from, life would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? But the devil makes the same sort of thing. The devil does the same sort of thing. See, when it comes to people's sin and them choosing between life and death, you see, it's that simple. Choosing life putting your faith in Christ or choosing death and hell by rejecting him. That's a simple choice that everyone in this world has to make. All of a sudden then becomes very confused because, oh, but what about this? Oh, well, I have to give up something else. And then what about my friends? What about the people I'm associating with already? What about my lifestyle? What things do I have to give up for that? What do I have to sacrifice in order to 
to obtain this thing and to get life. All of a sudden, people then can get totally confused about what the choices are. Too many different choices. Does it mean I have to come to your church? Or does it mean I have to read the Bible all the time now? Does it mean that I have to participate in those things? I surely can't be as, as good as you are. If you knew the things that I do, I can't be like you. The more they think, the more they struggle with the idea of simply accepting salvation. The devil has a wonderful job of confusing people. And people have a wonderful way of confusing themselves. The Bible teaches that when a person puts their faith in Christ, they're not only freed from the sin or the bondage of sin, they're freed from the penalty of sin and they're given a new position, a new nature that they didn't have before. The Bible says that we have been made a royal priesthood. And in another passage it says that he has made us kings and priests unto God. And this is what I was trying to get across last week. Do you understand the new position you now have in Jesus Christ? Do you understand that you are a king and a priest to God? And I spoke a bit about um, being a king and a priest last week, although I didn't go into it in too much depth. But there are two things I want to focus on today about what it means to be a king. It's good to be the king, isn't it? The Bible says there are two, well, according to my mind, two main things that... Kings need to be need to be doing. The one is that kings, if you look at if you read your Bible, one thing they need to be always ready for is war. There's always something going on. There's a, a friend of mine who says if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. If you're a king and you're in charge of a of a of of a, of a of a country or an empire, whatever it is, or a kingdom, you need to be prepared for war. Because there was always someone else seeking to take your kingdom from you. So kings always need to be ready for war. And they have to make very good judgment when it comes to war. And they're in war. And most of the times we find in the Old Testament, they were in wars most of the time. The other things that kings need to do very well is judge. They need to make right decisions on behalf of their people. The Bible speaks of a king in Israel who was greater than every other king that had gone before him. Wiser. Whose dominion spread more than any other king in Israel's history. Most of you already know who that king was. It was King Solomon. Famed for his wisdom and good judgment. Also for his power and success in ruling his dominion. His kingdom was greater and more powerful than every other king that was before him. Yes, even his own father, King David. In First Chronicles chapter 29 it says, And the Lord magnified Solomon exceedingly in the sight of all Israel and bestowed upon him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. Turn to chapter turn to Second Chronicles, chapter eight. Second Chronicles chapter eight. With any exploits of war that Solomon did, 
that you remember? No major battle, isn't it? I mean, it's not, it's not as if we, Solomon's remembered as a, as a man of war. I mean, his dad fought most of the wars, didn't he? But it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 1, And it came to pass at the end of 20 years, wherein Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house, that the cities which Huram had restored to Solomon, Solomon built them and caused the children of Israel to dwell there. Solomon went to Hamath Zobah, and what, what does it say there? And prevailed against it. Yeah, when it says to prevail against something, there was a war. There was a battle that took place. And he built Tadmor in the wilderness and all the store cities which he built in Hamath. And he built Beth Haran, the upper, and Beth Haran, the nether, fenced cities with walls, gates, and bars. And Balath and all the store cities that Solomon had and all the chariot cities. What are chariot cities? What do you do with chariots? You make war. He was prepared. Okay? Let's read on. Chariot cities and the cities of the horsemen. More war. And all that Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and in Lebanon and throughout all the land of his dominion. As for all the people that were left of the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which were not of Israel, but of their own children, who were left after them in the land, whom the children of Israel consumed not, them did Solomon make to pay tribute unto this day. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? What's tribute? It's a tax, isn't it? It's a tax upon your defeated enemies. And what's, and what's the main purpose of a tax? It's to increase your own wealth and to keep their wealth at a minimum. So they can't start building up their armies and become a threat to you. You keep them poor. So that way they can't pay soldiers, they can't buy equipment, they can't invest in those things, and you stop them from being a threat. Solomon was a very good tactician was a very strong king. He did go to war, he did prepare his armies, and he also formed allegiances and alliances with other, with other kings to make sure that he was in a very powerful position. A king goes to war. As people who are in this royal uh, line, that we have now been putting. The Bible says that we find ourselves at war. Believe it or not, you and I are at war at this very moment. A war with the one who was already defeated at the cross. But the final judgment on this ruler has not been fully consummated, has not been fully committed yet. He still roams about seeking to devour those who he sees as his greatest threat. Those who represent the king who will one, come, one day come and destroy his kingdom, which has its days numbers, numbered. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith? knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. We have an adversary. 
someone who is against us. Someone who seeks our destruction. Someone who wants to take us out of the way. Why? Why do we have an adversary like this? Because we are a threat to him. Our very lives are a threat to him. And his hold on people's lives. This warning came from Peter. Be sober, be vigilant. Because we do have an adversary. And Peter's saying that the primary reason that Christians have to endure afflictions is because of him. Afflictions that are designed to destroy the faith of the saints of God. The same game that he played with Job. Do you remember that? Remember the game he played with Job? He attacked Job believing that if Job suffered, he would curse God. He would turn his back on God. He plays the same game with us today. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel as if your faith is under attack sometimes? Ever felt that? Yes? No? You do, don't you? I do. I can't be the only one. Do you see sometimes things conspiring against you that frustrate your focus on the Lord? You do, don't you? You see certain things happening at certain times that all of a sudden distract you and take your, your mind off Jesus Christ. How many times have you been distracted from the benefits that you have in the Lord which massively outweigh any problems that you could have? So that you're, you're consumed with what is not going right rather than what is going right. Think about it. How many times has it happened to us where everything seems to be going right? We have an incredible position, a wonderful future. We have our, all our sins paid for, a relationship with God, and then something comes up, all of a sudden, we forget about all that. And we focus on this little thing that's wrong. And all our world comes crumbling down. We need to follow the advice of Peter. And he says, be sober and be vigilant. We must be clear-minded. Because a person who is drunk is not clear-minded. A person who is drunk cannot walk properly. Can barely put one foot in front of the other. The Bible says we are to be sober in the way we think, the way we act. And we need to have purpose with, with what we're doing. The meaning of the word vigilant means simply to be carefully observant or attentive and to look out for possible danger. How observant are we in our lives? How observant are we about the things that we do which may be causing us more problems, which may be leading us astray from God's word? How vigilant are we about being distracted from our meditations on God's word. How vigilant are we about our prayer life for God? How vigilant are we to be seeking to serve those in, in the church? Are we vigilant? I would say most Christians aren't vigilant. I would say most Christians find every excuse they possibly can um, 
to say why they can't pray on a regular basis, why they can't read God's word, why they can't be faithful at church on a Sunday, why they can't come to church on a Wednesday night or to to prayer meeting on a Wednesday night, why they can't be involved in actually helping in ministry in church. Too many reasons, too many excuses. The vigilance is gone. It's much easier to be asleep under a tree, to be asleep as a Christian. Because I don't have to worry about all the headaches that go along with being a Christian, the fight that's raging around me. Because if I open my eyes and I see the, the, the fight that's happening, hey, I have to get involved here. Let me go back to sleep a little bit longer. The Bible says that we are in a war and our, our adversary seeks to destroy our church. This union we have, this, this body that comes together, the, the devil would love to destroy this. Because if he destroys this, if he gets each and every one of us focused on different things, rather than serving our Lord and our Saviour by serving each other and and him directly, then he destroys the place and the the body that, that represents Jesus Christ in this world. He destroys the ability when someone comes in that back door to see the unity and the love that we are meant to to show the people in, in this world. And if, we can't, if they can't see it, when they come in here, they are not going to see it anywhere. And he's done his job. How vigilant are you this morning? Paul's charge to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. How's your witness this morning? How's your fight of faith? You fighting? Or have you put, laid down your arms? What's your witness before men in this world? Paul, with confidence towards the end of his life, says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. He wrote this to Timothy once again. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. Do you love his appearing? Are you looking forward to when Jesus returns? When your king returns in triumph, and you and I will receive crowns, which the Bible says that we will willingly throw at his feet, because he deserves it all. How is your desire to see Christ? Do you understand when Paul fought the fight, he fought believing that he had to maintain the faith. Wasn't to be distracted. And Paul knew at the end of his life that he had won that race. When the fighting persists, I I know that you can feel exhausted. It's tiring to fight. It's sometimes you, you fight. And you, you, you go through a season of, of, uh, of, of battles and you come out exhausted and sometimes confused and weak. Sometimes you seem as if you're fighting the same battles over and over and over and over and over again and you get defeated at each time you fight that battle. I know. I know we struggle with battles. The Bible says that we are to be wise. The Bible says 
that the Bible gives us directions on how we are to win this war. But we so often forget the battle plan. That we have a king who has gone before us and won the victory and who says you can be victorious too in me. But we fail to read the battle plan. We fail to take notice of it and learn it, to digest it. We run out into the fray without the armour, without a weapon. And then we get defeated and we say, oh, woe is me, I can't do this anymore. I fought this fight so many times, I can't win. Let me go to sleep for a while. Too many Christians are sleeping because they've attempted to fight, but not according to the Lord's way, according to their own way. I know it's exhausting to fight. God didn't say it'd be easy. The Bible also says that who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. That's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Sheep for the slaughter we are. But then it says in verse 37 of Romans chapter 8, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. More than conquerors. Once upon a time there was an old mule um, that was beloved by, its, by, its, uh, by the farmer who owned it and it fell into a well, a place where he kept, he kept water. And the farmer had no idea to get this mule out. And he thought and he thought and he thought and he loved the mule because the mule had been very, it was an old mule, but it had been very faithful. And it fell into this, this thing and the farmer had absolutely no way of getting it out. So he went and conferred with some of his friends and they said, well, there's nothing really to do. Let's bury it. So they went there with a few shovels, this mule at the bottom of this well, and they started, while the mule was still alive, they started to dig the dirt and throw it on the mule. Well, the mule, confused as it was at that stage, looked and, and, and started receiving shovelfuls of dirt on its back. Instinctively, the mule shook its back. Thought, what's this on my back? So it shook its back, and as the dirt fell around it and under it, it took a step up. And as they kept shoveling the dirt on the mule, the mule kept shaking and stepping up, shaking and stepping up, shaking and stepping up. Until eventually the mule came out of the well. Sometimes you need to go through the trials to get through the other side. You can avoid the trials and the, and, the, um, and the persecution. Sometimes you need to go through it. It's there for a reason. And we grow through persecutions and sufferings. Next thing is that God makes, or the king makes proper judgment. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. The Bible says that Solomon was a very wise king. He was renowned for his wisdom. 
In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 16, there's a story about, probably one of the most famous stories about one of his judgments that he passed. And it says, There came two women that were harlots under the king and stood before him. And one woman said, O oh my Lord, I and this woman dwell in one house, and I was delivered of a child with her in the house. And it came to pass the third day after I was delivered that this woman was delivered also. So they both had a baby in that same house. And we were together. There were no strangers, stranger with us in the house, save we two in the house. And this woman's child died in the night because she overlaid it. I mean, she rolled over it and smothered it. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while thine handmaid slept and laid it in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. When I, and when I arose in the morning to give my child suck, behold, it was dead. But when I had considered it in the morning, behold, it was not my son, which I did bear. And the other woman said, Nay, but the living son is my son, and the dead is thy son. And this, and, uh, this said, No, but the dead is thy son, and the living is my son. Thus they spake before the king. What a dilemma. How does a king know whose son it is? Let's read on. Verse 24, And the king said, Bring me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then spake the woman whose the living child was unto the king, for her bowels yearned upon her son, and she said, O oh my lord, give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. But the other said, Let it be neither mine nor thine, but divide it. Then the king answered and said, Give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. She is the mother thereof. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. Solomon was a very wise king. So wise, in fact, that other kings would come and visit him to learn and, and, and understand his wisdom. Kings are required to make very important judgments, are they not? Kings, kings, it's critical they make the right judgment because what they judge affects not only them, it affects everyone under their dominion, under their realm. Actually, if you think about a king and you compare it to our government and all the decisions our government makes, that would be invested in a king, all those decisions. A king would be responsible for all the... Carbon tax laws and things like that. Think of all the decisions that they make. A king would be, would be required for those sorts of things. In addition, a king would be responsible to make sure that the laws of God were obeyed. And how those laws were interpreted. Even though he may have had judges, he was the final authority on what the law was and how it was to be dispensed. Solomon ruled his kingdom well. It became strong and wealthy. It increased in fame and dominion. The Lord had given King Solomon exceeding wisdom, more wisdom than any other person that had lived in history. We are called to be wise in our generation. We are called to be wise as... What was that? Serpents and gentle as or innocent as doves. We are called to be wise. God... Well, the Lord said in, in, uh, in John chapter 7, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Jesus desires his children to judge righteously. The saying, you ever heard the saying, Judge not, that you be not judged? That is not a blanket statement for everything. 
That's talking about judging unrighteously or judging wrongly about people. The Bible calls us to judge according to God's word and the truth. It doesn't mean that we are cold-hearted, but the Bible says that we speak the truth in love, like I've said, I've said uh, during the message. And this is what Paul desired of, the, desired of the church. Turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. This is a prayer that Paul had for the church, Philippi. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offence till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. That's Paul's prayer for the Philippian church. That's Paul's prayer for us. That's the Lord's desire for us. Because what was true for them is also true for us. That our knowledge would increase. How do you increase your knowledge? By reading the newspaper? No, by... Going to school? No. It's about reading God's word. It's about understanding God's truth. And the Bible says that he wants our love to abound more and more in knowledge. Knowledge without truth, sorry, love without knowledge is fake love. Useless love. It's a bit like a doctor who doesn't know anything about medicine. But because he feels feels um, sorry for people who are sick, he goes around and starts writing prescriptions for people, for medicine, but prescribes a very wrong medicine for them and kills them. You can feel sorry and love people, but you can kill them at the same time because your knowledge doesn't match love. It has to go hand in hand. A love based on emotion and is, is a knowledge based on deception. It's a love with no foundation, a Hollywood type of love that doesn't last, a love that can't endure. But the love that God wants us to share with people is a love based on truth. It's not a watered down love. It's a genuine love that endures. But it's a love that speaks the truth. It doesn't hide the truth, it speaks it. It's It's what's called judgment. We are to judge with love. With the foundation of love, we apply the truth. Understand that? With the foundation of love, you apply the truth. You can't have just truth without love. You can't have love without truth. They need to be dispensed together. We are to judge with knowledge. Think about it. If you judge without knowledge... It would be like a judge sitting in a courtroom who doesn't know the laws and who doesn't know the facts of the case. Can't judge. But when you can see properly, when a person has their eyes open to the truth and they know the truth, they can then judge properly. This is what God calls us to do and to be. 
It proved the right. Disproved the wrong. And it means that you first have to know what is right in order to judge rightly. God's desire is that we will be filled with the fruits of righteousness. We'll walk his paths. We will do his works. We will speak his words. We will think his thoughts. There's a lot to be done. The principle is that we judge amongst each other. We judge ourselves first and we judge amongst ourselves. We, we can judge each other. This is the place where we learn how to judge. We don't judge them outside the church because God will judge them. Like 1 Corinthians 5.12 says, For what have, I to, what have I to do to judge them that are without? That means outside. Do, we, do not ye judge them that are within? That means within the church. But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore put away among from yourself wicked people. Paul said, put away from yourself people who call themselves Christians and are wicked and are living an immoral lifestyle. This is why Paul rebuked the Corinthian church. Because they either didn't know the truth enough to judge properly or they refused to judge because they were immoral themselves. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six verse one. Paul says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know you not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. Let me ask you a question. Is that talking about judgment? Yeah. It's talking about if two people have a problem with each other in the church, then the least esteemed, the, the one who is the youngest in Christ in the church, should be able to say and make a judgment between those two. Should be able to look at the facts and say, that's right and that's wrong. Or we should do it like this. And Paul says it's a shame for them. Because the Corinthians by that stage should have been able to judge on these matters. And Paul says, don't you know in the future we will judge angels? We have been called to judge the world. And if you can't judge a little matter in the church, what sort of people are you? The problem is two. One, not knowing the truth. In other words, they were so ignorant of God's truth, had become so blinded to the truth, they couldn't make judgment. They didn't know how. Or the other one is that they were immoral themselves and refused to judge because then they would feel like hypocrites. We have been called to make righteous judgment. We have been called to do right with each other. 
And it starts here. Judgment starts first with ourselves, or we judge ourselves properly, and then we can help, like Jesus said, help those in the church. Judging doesn't mean just to judge and say, you're wrong. Judging means that you, you choose the right, and you encourage others to choose the right. We help each other to grow in the Lord. Now, while Solomon had his shortcomings as king, Jesus is the true king. Solomon had many problems. Most of us know his problems. He ended up marrying wives from all over the place, got involved in in things he shouldn't have been doing, and then, at the end of the day, he didn't achieve what God wanted him to achieve. But the Bible says we have a, a true king. When Jesus walked the earth, it says in Luke 11.31, The Queen of the South shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. If Solomon was wise, Jesus is wiser. It's his judgments that we should seek and learn from. It's his life that we should take as an example for ourselves. He is the one that we should look to for everything. He is the one who makes the decrees and we follow them. It's his law, the Bible says, that we follow. No one else's, his law. That's why Revelation 19.11 says, And I saw heaven open, behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he to judge and make war. His eyes was a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. That may be us. That may be us following him into battle. And that in his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he shall tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is our King. He is our Lord. And as his representatives, as his body on this earth, God has called us to once again make proper judgment and fight the good fight. Someone said uh, at one time, I am far within the mark when I say that all armies that have ever marched and all the navies that were ever built and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on this earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. A carpenter who lived in Jerusalem, in Israel, 2,000 years ago, has affected this world more than all of the kings and, and princes and parliaments and wars put together. Has he affected you? How do you see him today? Is he your king? Have you put your faith in this king today? There is no greater king in all of history in all the universe than him? Have you been freed from the sin and death that Satan wants to keep you trapped in? There is only two possible places you can be this morning. Either you are freed from your sin and are living, or you are still trapped in the cage of sin and death and you are dying 
a slow and miserable death. And you have only one destination, and that's hell. For all of eternity. No changing your mind after that. I remember discussing uh, the angels uh, at, a, at, a, um, at a particular class. And I said, one of the things that struck me as we were discussing angels, the thought that angels now don't change their mind. Have you thought about that? But there was one time, a rebellion, when the angels, a third of them, rebelled and, and made a choice and said, I don't want to be with God, I want to be with Lucifer. So a third of them decided, we're going to go. We're going to rebel, we're going to do things our own way, and two-thirds made a choice to stay. But the Bible speaks of them not having choice anymore. You don't hear angels changing, swapping sides now. The ones that have chosen their path to destruction have no choice one way or the other. They're going there. The ones who have chosen to be with the Lord and to serve God, they're staying there. Does God's... How is it? How does it work? They can't change their mind now? That often, that often makes me think. But then I think to myself, look at our lifetime compared to eternity. Now... We have a choice to make. Now is the time to choose. Because our lives are very short. Even if you live a hundred years, what does that compare to eternity? But after this, after the choice has been made, when you die, the choice is fixed forever. If you choose not to follow Christ, you will be in hell forever with the devil and his angels. If you choose to follow Christ, the Bible guarantees that you will never fall again. You will be given a completely new nature. The old will be done away with. And there's no more choices to make after that. We will only live in righteousness before him. Free of sin and death. Christian, have you understood your position this morning? Have you understood what God has called you and called you to be? More importantly, have you understood the responsibility that goes to that position? With freedom comes responsibility. Judgment and war are never easy matters to deal with. But this is where we are. This is what we have to deal with. Are you following the captain of your faith or are you AWOL? Are you missing in action today? Have you deserted the battlefield for the comforts of the world? What a shame it would be in the day of judgment when we stand before the throne of Jesus Christ that you have nothing to show for the life you've lived now. There is much to do. There is much still to learn. There are many battles to fight. Let's not give up. God bless you all.